Yo, what up everybody? Welcome to the Inside Scoop on Mental Health with Bracken Lovell and Brandon Paxton, where we discuss mental health and focus on changing the stigma associated with mental illness. Remember, we're not professionals, but we do care about making a difference. We're here to give you the inside perspective from those living with mental health-related concerns. Please reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook with any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show. And please don't ever hesitate to reach out and ask somebody for help if you're struggling, and that includes us. Enjoy this week's episode of the Inside Scoop on Mental Health. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Inside Scoop on Mental Health today. We've got an incredible guest with us today, Stefan. Sorry about that. Um, He's got an incredible story. We're excited to hear uh, some of the struggles that he's been through and how he's been able to turn his life around to really become quite successful. Um, Stefan, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm awake. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're taking up his Saturday, so we're grateful that he's willing to be here t- this early. I do a lot of cool stuff during the week, but on the weekends, I really, I, I, I'm lazy usually, so <laughs> Just it's, it's totally fine. <laughs> hey, that's all right. Yep, yep. Now we appreciate you being here. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, let's see. So right now I'm a mental health and wellness coach and contact tracer for a startup company called Trula Health. Um, I also uh, am the head communications director and the uh, head of humanitarian projects for another startup company called Eden Technologies. Uh, they're a water desalination and purification company. Um, and yeah, I, uh, three months ago I was a landscaper and six months ago, uh, I was escaping from the trunk of a car thinking, uh, I was going to die. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, uh, your life's a little bit different in the the past couple months. You've really changed that. Uh, To say the least, you know, I, uh, like six months ago, I hardly thought I was going to you know, be alive, much less doing two jobs that I actually, you know, really believe in what I'm doing and, and, you know, feeling like I might actually make a difference, you know, like it's not even about the money. It's about doing just cool shit that I love. (laughs) Um, and yeah, I, I never saw my life really turning this direction, you know, but yeah. What's that like for you? Which part? The just to be able to look back retrospectively and and think, man, like, what'd you say, six months ago? You know, you're in the trunk of a car, and what's that like to look back on now and think about where you're at? Uh, it's it's incredible. Um, you know, the it, it's hard sometimes because it almost feels like things almost got too good too fast, and uh, I guess it, it it's almost I'm unused to. Like, I'm totally not used to just feeling good and and having things go right, you know. For the last, like, 10 years of my life, you know, I've been in and out of, you know, jails and rehabs and everything else. And, um, I I, I mean, to suddenly go from having absolutely nothing to it's just like I moved down here one day. I go to, you know, rehab and get out, get a job. And then all of a sudden, you know, I meet up with my friends from high school and everything just is going well. And it's like I, I feel like it's almost effortless and it's it's almost 
suspiciously effortless you know it it, it actually kind of like is it a dream or yeah you wait, you're just waiting to wake up yeah you know there, there's there been times where literally uh i'll be laying on the couch or whatever and um you know i, I do suffer sometimes with like little ptsd flashbacks and things like that and something in my head just kind of is almost just like there's no way this is actually happening like i'm just waiting to like come to consciousness and like still be in the trunk of a car you know what i mean like it's it's really wild (laughs) yeah so let's go back to maybe your family situation kind of get a background of what led you to the point of where you are now what got you in all those different situations that you've been in uh what was it like for you growing up as a child um okay so i was born like fort bragg north carolina you know my dad he was a delta force guy he's came here from communist Hungary when uh, when he was 18 he forged a travel visa um, spent two years in an Italian refugee camp came to the United States joined the army um, you know he was part of that whole like Black Hawk down everything like the operation Gothic serpent and um, like he he has an incredible story you know like if if anyone <laughs> you know I, I hope I can even be you know an eighth of the man that my dad is um and my mom you know she's from a very turbulent uh living uh in york pennsylvania um you know her her family was all drug addicts and things like that and she got uh moved around between parents homes and um yeah she uh she had an interesting upbringing but so growing up like my dad he wasn't around a lot um you know, he retired from the military in 97. Um, and then after that was doing different like piloting or government, uh, jobs where he'd be gone sometimes for months at a time, you know, home for a couple weeks, things like that. And, um, my dad and I were always a lot closer than my mom and I, um, and my mom was, uh, growing up, she was pretty emotionally unavailable. You know, my parents did that whole, like stay together for the kids thing. And, um, you know, that, that was why I honestly, I didn't even give my daughter's mom really a chance, uh, because I, I was so scared of doing that to my own kid. Um, you know, cause I, I knew the girl for like a month, got her pregnant. And so anyway, I moved from North Carolina when I was five, went to Florida for a year, went to Alabama for two years, went to Houston for a year, up to York, Pennsylvania for not even a year down to Georgia for five years and then I moved out here uh, when I was like 15 um, moved away when I was 21 uh, following a shooting um, yeah I went up to rehab in Seattle for six months came back here and then moved away to Idaho where uh, I spent the last seven years raising my daughter well about three of those years raising my daughter three of those years being a fucking idiot but um yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've you've been moving around pretty much your whole entire life. Yeah, yeah, and and that was an interesting experience uh, of itself. You know, this is the first time I've ever like been back to a state, and um, that that guy Ryan who I work with, uh, I I told him and Reese they're the two longest friends I've ever had in my life. You know, and I was just like, it's wild to me because now I have to like start thinking about how things I said and, like, things I did, you know, 10-plus years ago, how they're going to, you know, affect people. And 
I've never had to think about that before because I've always been like, I'm not even going to live in this state in like two or three years. Why the fuck do I care what I say or do to you? you know? Right. Yeah. Like I've never had a sense of permanency for anything. Right. No, I, I completely get that. I mean, um, I feel like especially being younger, you don't really think about the decisions that are going to impact the rest of your life. Um, but I'm sure sh- I, you know, I, I'm trying to kind of put myself in your shoes and think, you know, how would that be? You know, you might, you might make completely different decisions knowing, Oh, I'm, I'm never going to see these people again. I'm not, I'm not going to come back to this place. But, uh, uh, I wanted to ask, what was it that made you come back? Was it your daughter? Uh, no, actually my daughter, she's still, um, up there in Idaho living with her mom. Um, I, I mean, she was a big motivator as to why I came here because I was living, you know, three, four miles away from her house and I wasn't being a parent. I wasn't being there for her. Um, you know, and, and I just, I I realized that I wasn't having fun anymore. I I wasn't being uh, a good dad. I, I just, it, it was not okay what I was doing, and this was the last place that I remember things being okay. And so I was just like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to go back down to Utah. Um, you know, I didn't even tell anyone I was coming down here. I was just like, so many people in this town still know me. Um, you know, I, I go to, like, AANA meetings, and, uh, like, these people you know, still are recognizing me from all these years ago, you know, and uh, they'll be, you know, calling me by my old nickname or whatever. They're like, oh, my God, it's Super Tramp. I'm just like, oh. I was just like, I go by Stefan now, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's wild, and I'm, I'm glad I made that decision because now I'm 14 hours away from my daughter, and I talk to her more than I have, you know, in three years. Wow. But yeah. So with you moving around so much, how do you think that affected your life, especially growing up, not really having a, a, home, a place to call home? I mean, you're moving every couple of years. Yeah, um, it, it, it skewed my sense of, yeah, the word home. You know, it, it definitely uh, it changed the way that I felt and interacted with people in so many ways because – on one hand, it's like you you desperately want to make these meaningful relationships and friendships with people um, because you're worried that you only have a short time to know them, you know. Um, it's, it's a strange and unique uh, feeling to realize when you move somewhere um, that, one, you always have to overcome that whole being the new kid. You're never from that town. Um, you know, when someone asks where you're from or things like that, you think of places where it's like where you have roots, not just where you were born, you know? And it's like, so when someone asks me where I'm from, I'm like, fuck, if I know now, I just tell them, you know, Utah. Um, cause yeah, <laughs> it's got the most time. So, um, it, it, it affects that. It's like, so you want these meaningful friendships, uh, in that short time. So that's part of, you know, how I ended up being just an open book about my story and things like that, because I, I don't have time for a lot of these just, uh, surface conversations and small talk, you know, like that's just, I, I, I don't find as much interest in it. I don't want to know how's the weather. I want to know like who you are as a person, like what are your dreams? What are your goals? You know? Like, what's the fucked up shit you like to do when no one's watching kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, it it also kind of numbed me out to 
a lot of the uh, troubles and plight of other people. Um, again, because it was one of those like, I'm probably not going to know you. So it's like, I want to get to know everything about you, but I don't let myself get attached. You know, right. it's like, I am the absolute worst person when it comes to like answering my phone, calling you back or like, you know, it's fucked up to say, but like, if I can't see you in front of me, I'm probably not thinking about you like at all. You know, people will just right out of my mind and yeah, I just, I just keep on going on. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally get that though. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's admirable that you can, you can say that though, that you've, you've learned, you know, that's something, at least from my perspective, that you can say good that you've taken from that is, you know, like a meaningful relationship. Cause how often do we focus on, you know, the, the little stuff that, doesn't even matter like why why do we talk about the weather you know (laughs) we we all know what the weather's like but uh how did that affect your mental health Um, all this moving around and you know not knowing any you know like not knowing any consistency with those relationships um so i also had the added bonus of again most of those states i listed were in the heart of the bible belt and uh, i grew up in an atheist family um, so not only was I the new kid, but I was also the new kid whose family didn't go to church. So there's a lot of kids where I wasn't even allowed to hang out with them after school or things like that. You know, we could be friends at school, but a lot of times their, fr- their parents would even tell them that they can't be friends with me at school. And, um, so it's like, you're bullied for being, you're bullied for, um, being different, uh, bullied for not being religious. It it made me very, very resentful towards a lot of people. It made me very resentful towards religion. Um, and I just, uh, sorry, I kind of just spaced out there for a second. I guess thinking about it, repeat that question one more time. Uh, just with your mental health, um, Uh, how did that affect your mental health? Yeah. So it, it affected it very, very adversely. Um, my my dad, when he went to Iraq when I was 12, um, I was living in Georgia, seventh grade, and I ended up telling my mom, you know, that I, I was feeling suicidal uh, because I just, I didn't know how else to, I guess, feel or express the emotion other than just being severely depressed. You know, I had anxiety all the time. I, I, I couldn't focus on anything. Um, and and my mom's solution uh, when I just told her that you know I was like I just need someone to talk to. Um, she cried a lot, and the next day she pulled me out of school, got me drug tested, um, and then took me to a shrink, uh, got me put on medication. And I hated that medication. They they gave me far too high a dose of Adderall and Zoloft and uh, Remeron. Um, just to start off with and uh that 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 kind of was i guess where the substance abuse and things like that you know started to come around um it was just because um after a couple years of the antidepressants and adderall and everything um someone i i care about dearly you know said to me when i was i didn't want to take my meds they said that they liked me better on my meds and um you know, I kind of thought to myself, I was just like, man, uh, if I can't even get my own family to like me, 
unless, you know, I have something going through my system. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Um, and so I just, I started feeling like I, I had to have something to even be accepted. You know what I mean? Because right. it was like, I'd take those meds and all of a sudden, like, I, I was a lot calmer, a lot less angry. And even kids at school, I started suddenly, like, kind of making friends. You know what I mean? And I hated the fact that I was, I was making friends because I was, you know, medicated. Hmm. Like, I, I it just, none of it felt authentic to me anymore, you know? So, yeah, it, uh, it fucked me up a lot, actually. Uh, mo- moving around a lot and just... I don't know. I, I, I was a very uh, sad and resentful person for a long, long time, you know. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said there about control um, and, you know, feeling like everything's out of control. And, you know, I can I can definitely see where you're starting to feel some of that depression and the, like, the suicidal ideation. But what's even more interesting and intriguing to me is that you bring up your perspective from the medication um what do you think that let me try to phrase this question better but how do you think medicine or or like doctors in general could better approach that from your perspective um because and, and with just to explain my question a little bit more i know there's a little bit of a debate between like okay our doctors prescribing this too freely um, you mentioned you were, you felt like you were over medicated and, but your family just saw like, oh, you're, you know, you're doing better. How do, how do you feel about that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very on the fence with a, a lot of it just because, um, you know, mental disorders like truly are like, it, it's an imbalance of, of chemicals in the brain, um, and every person's brain is different, you know. So there are some people who medication is really going to, to help. And I never want to tell people that, you know, they shouldn't get on meds or things like that. Like, because that, that'd be fucked up. Some people need it and some people benefit from it a lot. Um, you know, myself, again, I was, I was 12 years old. Um, we were living in a whatever middle class white neighborhood. Um, my dad had good insurance uh, from doing the security contract o- over in Iraq. And so it's like we went to this nice freaking shrink's office and I couldn't stand my shrink because it was like she, she wouldn't listen to me. She just jot some things down on a freaking notepad and then just tear off a prescription. And every time she'd either double my dose or increase the frequency you know, and like her solution wasn't to listen to me. It was to just medicate the problem further. And if I started showing symptoms again or things like that, then she assumed I was now getting used to my medication, up the dose, da da da, da. You know, um, I think that it's, it's sad that there are several people, uh, you know, in the uh, higher socioeconomic classes who, you know, they get those uh, expensive therapists and things like that who literally just become, you know, legal drug dealers in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of people fake mental illnesses and it dilutes the water for the people who actually need it. Um, you know, just like how people who seek pain medication, uh, you know, it, it makes it harder for people who are in actual pain to then get it. Um, and, and it's just, it's a sad state of affairs uh, when it comes to things like that. But, um, 
so I think that there is an overprescribing in certain ways because a lot of people they want to mask the problem rather than rather than face the problem, um, and and you know so I, I think everyone's everyone's kind of journey with it is different, um, and and yeah I'll just say that if if medication works for you then then go for it if if it doesn't work for you then don't. Right. No. And, and sorry, Brandon. I keep talking, but I. I, uh, I'm just curious because I think there's this big push for an integrated medicine design, you know, and mm-hmm. just like you say, well, to, I mean, to back up a little bit, mental health is becoming a larger problem than we've ever seen. We're seeing extremely high rates of depression, extremely high rates of anxiety. Just look at 2020 alone with suicide rates and, you know, drug overdoses and that. It's definitely becoming more of a problem. But we've also had this mentality. We've grown up in this in this, you know, 21st century of medicine where it's further advanced by far than we've ever been. And we want to just take a pill and be better. We want to take something and feel better. Um, but this more integrated design, this is kind of this, this push. And, and the reason I say this is, um, I actually work in an integrated clinic and this is kind of the direction that I'm headed. And what I see, especially with substance abuse is you, you can't like there is medication, you know, you, you mentioned a few of the medications that you took, Zoloft, Remeron, Adderall. They work. They do. They do they do their job, but not by themselves. You need to seek treatment. You need to, you know, look at your habits and that. And so you gotta have somebody to listen to you too. Like you yeah. said, she wasn't your shrink wasn't even listening to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you gotta actually work through the problems, you know, even like everybody says that you can't take shortcuts in life you can but you have to accept the fact that you know the the prize at the end of it you know is going to be cheapened by the fact that you know you took a shortcut some part of you will always know and you'll never be satisfied you know to i i feel you know with with your uh, victories by taking those shortcuts you know and so yeah you you can't just my opinion you know you can't take a pill and just be better um, you have to actually confront your issues no matter what, even if you're taking those medications. Maybe those medications help you uh, deal with that and, and uh, brace you for dealing with those traumas. But, man, you got to eventually deal with those traumas. Right. Well, and they have their own side effects, too. Yeah. Like you mentioned. Yep. Yes, they do. <laughs> so did those prescription drugs have any effect on you in regard to substance abuse? I think so. Um, I uh, because again, I, I once once I was told, um, you know, by a family member that that they didn't like me when I was off of my meds. Like all of a sudden, I was just like I was reluctantly taking my meds every day because I wanted my family to like me. And then uh, when I was fourteen or so, you know, I started smoking cigarettes down by the train tracks in Georgia, you know, pissed off all the time and, uh, thinking I was super cool. And, um, and one day some kids from our school, they come walking down the tracks and, you know, they sit on the other side and they're just like, you guys smoke weed? And they're rolling a big old blunt. We do now, you know, <laughs> and they're like, well, come on over. And, um, yeah, the first time I ever smoked weed, it was uh, laced with PCP, and uh, I got fucked up. 
And honestly, it was a nightmare. I was like in a fetal position crying, freaking the one dude punched me square in the chest. You know, he's like, let's go to the, I don't know, the railroad tracks and run 30. I'm like, what's run 30? He's just like, it's 30 seconds. It's like tap fighting, you know, you know, we're, we're not actually going to hurt each other. I was like, all right, we go down the railroad tracks. He just like takes his shirt off. And I was like, wait, what? And I just hear this kid go ding, ding. And he just boom, right in my chest. So fucking hard. Took the wind right out of me. And I'm just like sitting there on these train tracks there's a train approaching in the distance you know and it's one of those like moves at like a mile an hour freaking just slow moving trains just way the hell down the tracks and it's like and my friend has to like drag me out because it's like when that wind got took out of me and just being fucked up for the first time it was just like i just yeah i just balled up and just started crying and crying you know <laughs> wow. and um but but then you know probably about a month or two later I was like, you know what? I'm gonna try smoking weed again, <laughs> and um, and so I tried smoking weed again. And this time it was at like just a little local concert thing, and uh, for the first time in what felt like years, like I had just a genuine good time. Like I felt like myself, um, you know, or or maybe not myself, but I felt like a version of myself that that was having actual fun you know I, I had laughed for the first time in a long time I had uh, been present in the moment I had my appetite back like you know because because Adderall I mean all in all it's you know one or two molecules away from meth you know so it's like you don't eat a whole lot you don't sleep a whole lot like uh, if you have ADHD it just kind of zombifies you you just kind of exist and uh yeah so it was nice to not feel like a zombie and to feel like a 14 year old and uh you know i right away i was just like i i could keep doing this and so i started smoking more weed you know i started getting drunk at some of the concerts i never have been a big fan of getting drunk like i hate just the feeling of just everything spinning and I say way too much. I already talk too much as it is. Like, me drunk, that's just not a good thing, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll get sometimes a little too too honest, sometimes even for myself, but mostly for others. Um, and, yeah, I, uh, but, but I just started feeling this, this need to be impaired in, in some sort of way. And so... Uh, you know, and, and my quarrel a lot of times with, uh, you know, the weed being a gateway drug uh, was that realization that it's not so much a gateway drug as it is the gateway idea that, you know, when when you're 14, 15, whatever age you start experimenting, things like that. It's like you smoke weed for the first time and you realize, man, this isn't so bad. You know, if you had one of those families or grew up in an area like the South where, again, everything is like super demonized, you know, that's not like the Bible, uh, and you're just like, man, this isn't so bad at all, it's definitely not what, you know, everyone told me it was going to be, like, I'm not fucking dead, I'm not, you know, going out there like some reefer madness axe murdering motherfuckers, like, and, and you realize, how bad could anything else really be, you know what I mean, and it's like, so then my senior year, uh, when I was out here, you know, here and there, I'd freaking... Like drink a bottle of Delsum or some shit like that and go fucking trip balls in the desert. Or, like, I would, uh, you know, 
that that was probably the extent of uh, other things up until then but it was after high school that like so when i was 16 i got surgery on my back i've got metal bars from t5 to l3 uh so that's like a good majority of my back is just metal and fused together and um they told me i couldn't join the military so there's like my whole life dream just like shattered right there and when i graduated i was just like I didn't know what to do with myself. Like, I wasn't taking pain medication at that time. Um, and, and I didn't know what to do with my life. I was 18 and uh, standing there crying at my graduation because all I could think of when they handed me that diploma was now what? And um, I, I shortly thereafter, I took off from my dad's house with like, I just took off on my bicycle with uh a suitcase like tied to my back with a shirt I actually still have that suitcase like I just found it the other day in my dad's garage and um, you know just had a couple had a copy of uh, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha a um, couple other little books and a couple changes of clothes and that man I just freaking I just biked out of there just like fuck this and um, started selling weed to make extra money and the money was nice had all the weed I wanted. I thought I was, you know, whatever. Like one of those, oh yeah, life is good, freaking peace, love. You know, I was all hippied out, everything, no shirt, no shoes, long ass hair, freaking had the dreadlocks for a minute, like, you know. <laughs> and everyone like seemed to think, oh yeah, he's like this super cool, like so free kind of guy. When it was like, dude, I was, I was in such a bad place with myself in so many ways, you know, but I, I just, just like with uh, a lot of times the sobriety thing now even you just fake it till you make it you know and I, I put on this persona until I became that persona and um, you know not too long into it uh, I had a friend who I was staying with who he like kind of sold some pills and stuff like that and um, some of my weed customers were just like oh yeah do you know where to find these pills so it's like, you know what? I do. And I started realizing how much money I could make, you know, because I was like, yeah, I would never do freaking oxys or anything like that. So I started selling these oxys. And uh, I had this friend who he was kind of like a bodyguard. He's just like this big, scary Mexican motherfucker who like, uh, yeah, I just brought him with me and like nobody ever like tried anything with me. So I always tell people, you know, he's like my bodyguard. And uh, so we're at a party one day and he was just like, hey, let's go smoke some of those pills. And I was just like, no, dude, freaking, I don't, I don't do this shit, freaking, I just, I just want the money. And he was just like, throws the money out on the table. He's like, there, now they're paid for, let's go. And I was like, well, all right, you're going to twist my arm about it. And, um, you know, we threw it on some foil. I took one hit and, uh, you know, this is a, a common thing you hear like in, in meetings and things, you know. I had arrived like the moment I took that first hit it was just like it was over I mean it tastes like fucking cotton candy and all of a sudden just I just pulled out two more of them threw them right on the freaking foil and I was off to the races and within like two months I was probably smoking about 15 to 20 oxy 30s every day you know, that's 600 milligrams of oxycodone, like, going through my system. Like, how I managed to stay awake freaking is beyond me. And I would walk for miles every day. And, like, um, 
so then another one of my friends, he was selling heroin. A lot of people do pills, also do heroin. And so it wasn't a big step. And in my head, once again, goes that, you know, I should start selling heroin. Well, you know why? Because I don't do heroin. I would never do heroin. I'll never be one of those people. You know what I mean? And then uh, that lasted for all of like prior two months. And then, you know, and then one day I asked one of my clients because I, I was out of pills. And she's, I was just like, so what's this stuff like? It's basically like, you know, you're saving a lot of money and getting a lot better effect. And I was like, really now? And then I was off. Same fucking thing, you know. And that uh, consumed pretty much age 18 until uh, I was about 20 and a half years old. Uh, I only say that because from August 27th until the day after my 21st birthday, uh, so I know it was exactly 20 years and six months of age was when I stopped uh, using uh, opiates because um, I shot someone in my apartment and I freaking uh, spent a couple months in jail and then did a six-month rehab program. and um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I definitely struggled a lot with... Uh, all the substance stuff, and I just was searching for something to fill a void, you know what I mean? There was just something fundamentally wrong with me that I just, I didn't want to address it because I had started to believe that mentality of, you know, a pill, a substance, or something just could uh, take it away, and, and that blissful numbness was the same somehow as, as being all right, you know? So the rehab process wasn't necessarily your choice. It was court-ordered, correct? Um, well, so the first time I went to rehab, um, uh, again, so May 10th of 2012, um, three people broke into my house, and I shot one of them. Um, he lived. Uh, I shot him in the leg with an AK-47, and... Um, I actually got bailed out that night, um, you know, and first thing I do, I go back home and I realize that the only thing they had charged me with, like, you know, it was a felony to have a gun near drugs because one of the cops was like, I smell marijuana in this house. They literally found a stem on my nightstand and were going to charge me with having a gun near drugs. And so, like, but I was like, they're only charging me with weed? That means they didn't find my stash, you know what I mean? So, like, I go back to my apartment, I'm, like, tearing it up, just, like, I find my money, I find my drugs, I find all these things. I'm just like, yeah, if you're getting, you know, I don't even care about the fact that it's like, um, you know, I had a girl at the time, she was 17 years old, uh, living with me. And like, I mean, she was just absolutely traumatized by this, you know, like there's still blood on the fucking wall outside my front door of like someone's fucking leg. And, like, here I am. I just, like, walk right through a puddle of person so I can go in there. And I'm, like, looking for my drugs and stuff. And it's, like, she comes in, too, and realizes, like, not only did I not lock the front door, like, behind us, you know, you'd think that'd be your reaction when someone kicks your fucking door in. It's, like, I didn't, like, lock the door. I didn't even close the front door, like, all the way behind me. Like, I did not care at all. And she's just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, freaking, you know, someone just broke in today and you're not even going to close the door the whole way. And I just looked at her and I was like, 
Well, I mean, I guess if you think about it, you know what the safest day to fly ever was? September 12th of 2001. I was just like, nobody's coming through that door, you know? (laughs) 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 And uh, she just, she got so pissed off, you know, and it's like, and I didn't even care, like, pretty much at that time how much it, it traumatized her, like, what kept me up at night for the next, like, two weeks after that wasn't, though, uh, you know, this whole, oh, yeah, I could have died. Like, my, my nightmares were always, like, what would have happened to her, like, had I not been there, you know? Because these people thought I was at work. And so, uh, yeah, like, I, I freaked. It started to hit me more over the following weeks of just, like, just how serious of a situation that was. But... I mean, to this day, you know, she and I, we still talk, actually. We were just talking yesterday, and, you know, that whole thing, like, it, it still kind of fucks her up. She's like, that was some fucked up stuff. And I was just like, I sometimes forget that it happened. You know? <laughs> um, but So did that inspire you to change at all after thinking about how it could have affected her? Did you no, have fuck a desire no. at all? No. Um, so two months after that, I end up in jail for heroin and oxycodone possession. Um, and they wanted to just put me on drug court because now I had three felonies hanging over my head, the gun, the heroin, the oxy. And, uh, I had the fucking worst attorney ever. Like I hated that fucker. Um, he literally, he, he postponed one of my court appointments because I was being rude to him. And so he just made me sit in jail for another week. So I was in jail for like two and a half months. They're telling me that, you know, I was going to still have a felony no matter what, that they would just, like, reduce my charges and put me on drug court. And I didn't want to do drug court. And actually, what made me decide on rehab and what made me start to think about others wasn't some event or anything like that profound, like, that happened to me. Like, literally, I'm just sitting there in my little bunk, and I read these books, um... The, the son writes these books. Nick Chef is his name, Tweak, and We All Fall Down. And then his dad, something chef, wrote a book that they now made a movie of called Beautiful Boy. And, like, this book just, like, the one the dad wrote, Beautiful Boy, like, hit me so hard. Like, it's so well written. And, like, to, to get that outside perspective on, like, the dumb shit I was doing... You know what I mean? And just like, man, is this what I'm doing to my family? Like, uh, that was what made me decide, like, dude, I I don't want to keep living this way, right? And um, so I start getting phone time on my commissary. I start making some phone calls. And uh, (laughs) my court day comes around. And I told my lawyer, I was just like, listen, I don't want to reduce sentence. Like, I, I want to not have any of this. I want to do a plea in advance. Like, talk the judge into it. He's like, that's not going to happen. I was like, yes, it will. Just fucking listen to me. Do do your job and, and listen to what I have to say. We get there. Day of court. He stands up. He's telling uh, Judge Shoemate. He's just like, uh, oh, yeah, so he wants to go to rehab, and we want to do this, like, plea in advance thing. And or not, not a plea in advance, he was just like, and we just want to do a 402 reduction. And I just looked at him, and I was like, fucker, what? <laughs> like, I, I just said, I don't want a reduction. And so I just, like, 
I just look at him and I was like, sit down. And I, I freaking stand up and I was like, Judge Shumate, like, he is not expressing what I want. I said, I've already bought a plane ticket, like, to Seattle. And the judge is just like, you bought a plane ticket in jail? And I was like, so I got a plane ticket to rehab in Seattle. There's already a bed, like, waiting for me. Like, and I asked him if he was familiar with the Salvation Army. He's like, I've sent a lot of people to Salvation Army in Seattle, you know. Um, he's like, it's it's a great program. I said, I am, whatever, 20 years old. I, I don't want these stupid decisions to fuck up my entire life, you know. Uh, I, and And I totally, you know, played it in the sense of just like, Oh, yeah, after the shooting, you know, I was, you know, traumatized, and so I started using pills and heroin when the reality was I had been doing it for, like, three years. And so, um, yeah, like, he's he's all for it because uh, I just told him, I was just like, you know, I just started doing stupid things after a stupid event happened, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to be a felon, and so I want to plea in abeyance. And he was moved, and he said, okay, you know, but part of this plea and abeyance thing is, like, if you fuck up, like, you're going to do your six months of rehab, you're going to come back, you're going to do a year of supervised probation, and you're going to do two years of unsupervised probation. You're going to pay, like, freaking $8,000 worth of court fines. And if if you fuck up, like, at all, you know, rather than serving your charges uh, concurrently, you know, where basically – if I would have done, like, two years, you know, in prison with uh, all of those charges, that would have been time served for all three. But other, like, agreeing to a plea in advance means that uh, if you fuck up, like, you got to do them now consecutively. So I would have had to do two years in a federal medium security prison for the gun charge. I would have had to do uh, two years, like, for – or 18 months, basically, for heroin, 18 months or so for the oxycodone. And then all the misdemeanor charges as well. Like, you do wow. one after the other after the other. Like, and I was just like, fuck, dude, that's like six years <laughs> minimum. And I was just like, all right, bet, dude. Freaking, I was like so sure. Like, I was hell-bent on doing the sobriety thing. And I went to Seattle, dude, and it was like, and I was so about it. Like, um, I think a lot of it was just like, yes, like some part of me at the core really did like want to change and but and, and that was what set in motion a lot of good habits that came later um even though you know there were several relapses later but that first run through rehab uh changed my life saved my life um i can still say you know august 27th is uh marks uh, every year that i've been clean from heroin now for eight years you know like wow. i never went back to that <laughs> but um uh, yeah i uh like, I, I learned these good habits, but still part of me was just so used to doing almost this chameleon-like tactic because, again, when you move around a lot and these things, it's like you, you take a lot of chances with trying to find out what social group you're going to fit in with, you know what I mean? And so uh, I always, you know, was pretty good at being able to just, like, bullshit my way and just blend in with whoever. And so I was blending in to try and get the results that I wanted, but... Um, and, and I confronted a lot of issues, uh, while I was in there, you know, traumas, like whatever, being molested at like 14, stuff like that. And, um, the moving around a lot, the being bullied a lot, the, um, you know, the messed up things that I, I had done to other people even. Um, 
you know, I confronted a lot of that and, and learned how to, how to cope with it. And a lot of that whole, um, you know, drug seeking behavior kind of slipped away. And I, uh, but yeah, like it, that, that one actually lasted for, I, I got probably about three years clean before I had relapsed. Um, you know, got out of rehab, took me like two months to basically so I get out of rehab I meet back up with that girl uh who had been living with me again we'd been together for like two and a half years and um broke up with her because she was still smoking pot and I was just like oh yeah I'm living this whole like clean sober lifestyle now and my life was all about meetings I was working like two jobs and um yeah I break up with her and like two days later go find some rebound girl who that some rebound girl is now the mother of my daughter you know what i mean it was like yeah we knew each other for like a month and then boom again surprise i'm pregnant and i was just like <laughs> oh shit you know and um yeah so uh i stayed with that girl we moved up to idaho together to be close to my mom like she's not close with her family and I wasn't too close with my family either, but, and, and this is where I guess a lot of the stuff from rehab and, and what has changed in me now, right, was, so when I was younger and that whole anger, depressed and blah, 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 right, uh, something in my head, it was like, I would do the opposite of whatever anyone told me. If I wanted to do something and then you came up and you told me that I have to do that thing, right? I would all of a sudden, I'd just be like, well, this sucks because I really wanted to do that thing. But now you told me that I have to do it. Fuck you. And I'm going to go do something else, you know? And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'd go, I'd do the exact opposite. And so I get out of rehab and I was like super scared that anything and everything I did, like was going to make me relapse. I mean, not a whole lot of people can say that they spent their 21st birthday like chairing an AA meeting and then the next day graduate rehab, you know. And it's like I'm at a dinner table with my family and we're all, yeah, celebrating that like I just got a rehab. I'm at this table with my family. Every single one of them orders an alcoholic beverage. And it's like day before they all came to my AA meeting and stuff with me. And it's like, and now I'm 21 and they all just like, suddenly when the waitress like looks at me and asks me what I wanted to drink, you know, everyone's got wine and I was just like mm, kind of staring at her and everyone in my family just looks at me with this whole like what's he going to order you know like if he orders alcohol he's going to be freaking like uh whatever blitzed off his ass by the time we finish the meal or something you know and I just was just like I'll have a water water's fine <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it, it, it was very weird um, you know, it was probably also around two, three months outside of that rehab. The my friend who I live with now, um, you know, he was my best friend back then too. Uh, I just go over to his house one day. I was like, Ryan, listen, I need to figure something out. Like, if I'm if I'm really a fucking addict or how this shit works, I was just like, I'm 21 now, and I'm like scared of alcohol and everything. I was just like. So I want to go to the gas station. I want to, like, buy a tall boy, and I want to go, like, sit down, like, by the river and just go, like, drink this beer. Like, and I, I just want you to, like, split it with me. And if I ask for another beer after this, I was like, call my dad, like, send my ass back to rehab, right? Like, then there's something fucking wrong with me. And uh, 
so we go i get a tall boy we sit down by the river like between the two of us we like didn't even finish it because i was just like i don't fucking like drinking <laughs> um and it was like it was this like whole cathartic experience to do that and i was just like all right maybe it's not as bad as i had thought right um i didn't think about like the alcohol or anything after that like again i had just gotten the news that i was going to be a father and so like I had to freaking test this water before, like, becoming a dad or some shit. And so, um, but anyway, back to the whole thing. Like, yeah, so in my head, when that girl got pregnant, right, um, and my family is telling me, oh, yeah, you should move up to Idaho to be near your mom. It's like, I didn't want to be near my mom. Like, I, I love my mom, but, again, we've we've never been, like, super close, like, say, her and my older brother had, right? Um we, we've had some differences uh, in our past, and um, I'm, I'm still to this day, I, I, I'm trying to cope with and, and still manage that relationship. And um, everyone started telling me once I got this girl pregnant, like, oh, yeah, you're going to relapse. If you think it's hard staying sober now, imagine when you have a kid. And in my head, I was just like, well, it doesn't feel like I'm having difficulty staying sober now. You know what I mean? working two jobs, like, I had a friend who was going to, like, sell me a house, like, I thought things were going pretty good, but, like, my thought process went to, I spent the first 21 years of my life doing the exact opposite of what everyone said, like, just out of spite, and that turned me, you know, I felt that that had turned me into a heroin addict, like, that's not what turned me into a heroin addict, that turned me into a heroin addict, like, uh, and, and so I had suddenly that doubt in my head of just, like, okay, maybe I should do the things people say, like, because when you go through rehab, you know, you get a sponsor and do these things like they tell you to just like pretty much let go of the wheel and let these other people uh, make choices for you. And like, you know, just follow the suggestions that your sponsor, your counselor and all these people like give you just, you know, take these suggestions. And so I was just like, all right, you know, fucking hebus take the wheel or whatever. And uh, I, I let I, I just started doing basically everything my family told me to do. Because I was like, you know what? They're their age. They're not fucking up their lives. Like, maybe there's something to what they say. So maybe they're right. I didn't want to do it. I, I felt like it was a wrong decision, but I did it. I went up there. I moved up to where I didn't want to move, gave up my support system and everything that I had down here. Um, and I went to Idaho, um, a little town of 2,000 people called Kellogg. Um, my mom's husband, he uh, used to be the manager of Les Schwab Tires out there. And, uh, you know, I started working for him. I did that for like three winter seasons. Um, you know, again, metal rods in my back, zero degree weather, outside, changing tires all day. And I was like, I fucking loved that job, though. You know what I mean? It was just like, I love that physical demand. Just like, it's kind of mindless work, but... So I just started going into autopilot, like, and and I felt like I was genuinely enjoying it for a long time. Um, you know, I think a lot of it was the anticipation of becoming a father. And then when I saw my daughter, you know, come into this world, she was, like, born with her eyes wide open. It was, like, the most beautiful thing, dude. She's born with her eyes open, and she's, like, looking straight into my eyes. And I'll tell you, I was just like, huh, like, felt that in my soul, you know what I mean? And I was like, in that moment, I felt, you know, I, I could have... Like, I, I, I would be content with that happiness. Like, 
forever. And, and I wish, you know, there's a way you could contain that feeling, but, you know, feelings, they, they pass. And, uh, but, but I stayed in that state of bliss for, you know, probably two years after she was born. Um, you know, her, her mother, she's, she's a great person. She's a great mother to my daughter. Um, but for the first two years, you know, she suffered a lot with, um, postpartum depression and things like that. And, um, she, she, she was scared. She didn't want, she wasn't quite ready to be a mom. And so for almost two years, she, she wasn't really in the picture. You know, I was the one who changed all the diapers. I formula fed my daughter. I, um, uh, I, I was the one who, you know, put her to bed every night, everything like that. Like, um, and, and again, I, I never want this to be construed as anything like me talking ill of, of my daughter's mom. Like, again, she was just, she was going through her own struggle at that time. And then when she was ready to come back around, you know, she got her CNA, she started working at a hospital. She married this guy, Nate, she's still married to him. Um, they're about to have their second child together. Um, and, and, you know, um, yeah, my daughter is loved 100% in both homes and things like that. But yeah, probably somewhere around the two year mark, when my daughter's walking, talking, and starting to do things independently, you know, she's not, like, always attached to me. Like, all of a sudden, like, I have free time again, and, and my daughter's, you know, learning this independence, and her mom comes back in the picture, and, um, like, just not having my daughter there all the time. I was now, once again, working two jobs. I put myself through college. Um, I went to a college I didn't care about going to, for a degree that my family told me I should do because it's a good job, good job security. You know, I just started taking all these suggestions and, and I was living this life that felt, it, it felt very fake except for the love I had for my daughter, you know what I mean? And, and I started to just follow every single suggestion whether I liked it or not. And somewhere between the, the court battles, the college, the working, um, still jumping through all the hoops of my probation stuff, um, like yeah there just there wasn't enough hours in the day to like do all the stuff I wanted to do and and felt I needed to do and like the stress of it all dude I just I just had this snap you know and it started out where uh, I, I started doing like suboxone or subutex you know um, which is just whatever buprenorphine and uh or suboxone is buprenorphine and uh, naloxone. And it was like, and of course, drug addict that I am, uh, I didn't even, I've still to this day, I can, I can say that I've like never popped one. You know, most, most of the drugs that came in pill form, I can still to this day say I've never actually just like put one on my tongue and just like saw how it went. Like I had to either snort it or shoot it whatever it is like because whenever I did things I did things in extremes I couldn't just be a pill popper like oh I had to you know be a little bit cooler or whatever and, um so I just I, I started taking these subutex and somehow just rationalizing in my head that oh it's not you know it's not an actual opiate or opioid they like prescribe this you know it's like being hooked on methadone it's one of those things it's like you're just using a fucking you know, excuse in my opinion, using you know, an opioid to replace an opioid. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Except, except suboxone. You know, doesn't even count as an opioid or whatever. Like it's it's different. Right. <laughs> like, like it's medication for. Yeah, right? and so like it's it's a blocker, and so uh, and 
and my understanding was like you couldn't get addicted to it dude you can get addicted to anything you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like and so i just i started doing those rationalizing myself like oh yeah i was in physical pain from like the changing tires and things like that when the reality of it was probably just that me being stressed out all the time and, and like you know being bummed out that basically my daughter wasn't like the adorable little precious thing that was like attached to me all the time anymore like she's uh, growing up, her mom was back in the picture, like, just, uh, I, I started to, w- once that started to happen and my daughter started to, like, grow up and, uh, all, like, I just suddenly started to get really, like, bummed out, and, and I started to kind of see and feel the fact that all the choices I was making weren't, you know, choices that I would do for myself, you know, um, so just something I, I guess that I, I want to share that um, probably the one of the biggest moments for me when I was uh, at the Salvation Army for that first time, um, I was doing my step work and I get to the part, you know, talking to my sponsor about like making amends with people. Right. And and he told me, like, you're going to make this list. You're going to list out all like the people, places and things like you have resentments to. Right. And he hands me a notebook and a pen and, like, didn't even start, like, or I didn't even, like, listen to his full instructions at first. He just told me, make a list of shit I resent, dude. And I filled up, like, probably two, three hundred things within, like, five minutes, dude. I was just like, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. (laughs) Like, I just, I hated everything and everyone, like. And then he's like, okay, well, now you're going to make a column of, like, what it is you feel like why you have this resentment towards them right uh or how you feel you per- or perceived being wronged and then over here in this next column you're going to write like what your part in it was right and i was like i have to say that i did something wrong <laughs> like no you know i'm the victim here fucking fuck all these guys are assholes and uh you know he started to kind of say to me from like the stories we had said he's just like are you sure that time, you know, you did this, this, and this, you you weren't a little bit in the wrong? And I was like, yeah, you know, I probably didn't have to necessarily, like, light that person's car on fire, I guess. So, like, I, I could see where, you know, I might, <laughs> I might be a little responsible for this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, um, and so, uh, anyway, we get to it, and, like, my dad, he's kind of like this scary, mythical like figure you know uh, he was for a long time um, and and this is what humanized him a lot to me was um, I thought for sure he was going to be like the hardest person for me to make amends to and I thought for sure he was going to be the last person I made amends to right and probably like two weeks after that my dad comes out boom surprise visit you know and it's like and we, we're going around Seattle he and I we go have some sushi like I got a day pass from the rehab and like uh, we go get some sushi and we're just sitting in the rain in this car and I, uh, I don't know, we were having this really good conversation and just like flowed so naturally into it. I was just like, dad, like I want to do this whole like make amends thing, right? And, like my, my sponsor tells me that I'm going to try my best to only use I statements and I'm going to say this is how I feel, you know? And then I also want to say how I feel that, you know, I may have may have done you wrong. And, and I, I want to try and figure out a way that we can, you know, make it better from there. And um, so I, I say my whole thing to my dad and I'm just like, 
wasn't crying like the whole time i remember like i was just on that verge of tears my eyes were just so watery you know like it hurt to have my eyes open and um that was the second time in my life that i had ever seen like my dad cry the first time was when one of our dogs died and you know i didn't think my dad like could cry mm-hmm. you know like uh and and i'm telling him this and his eyes are you know watery and you know he's got tears coming down a little bit here and there as i'm just saying like you know it sucked like not having you there like through puberty through like meeting girls and um you know he was in iraq for like two and a half years he'd be gone for six months home for two three weeks and back gone for another three to six months you know what i mean you never knew if it was the last time you were going to say goodbye to him and it was just like and and i had i had felt abandoned you know um because it, it affected our whole family my mom she was even more emotionally unavailable during that time than the rest of the times in my life and um i had no one to turn to again i was bullied a lot da, da, da. And, um, so like, uh, I, I just tell him all these things, how I just, you know, I felt let down or things like that. And then, you know, started to mention just like, yeah. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily like the most whatever, uh, prize winning kid or anything like that. Um, you know, and, and I, I've treated him very, you know, unkindly in, in the past too. And, um, he stops and he or when when i get done saying all this you know he he let me say my whole part and he says to me you know son he says i i can't tell you you know how sorry i am for for not being there for those things but i'm also going to have to apologize to you for the fact that i'm not sorry for what i did and if i had to do it again i would like and i was kind of like what the fuck you know all of a sudden like the tears like dried up and everything and he says, listen, you know, like I had uh, no no parents growing up, you know, again, he, he lived in communist Hungary as a kid when he was eight years old. His dad came to America. His mom threw him in, or, in an orphanage because she didn't feel like raising him. So like he grew up in the streets, communist Hungary, 1968, you know, like uh, had his first gang tattoo when he was nine years old that he did himself, you know, one of those big shitty like kids butterflies. He like did like right square on his chest, you know. And then he's also the kind of guy who, like, when he came to the States and wanted to get rid of those tattoos, he removed his tattoos himself. He, like, poured lye on them and fucking used a safety pin and just dug the ink out. You know what I mean? Like, so he's got now a scar of a big shitty kid's butterfly on his chest. <laughs> like, which kind of almost makes it, like, intimidating in a sense because you're just like, why the fuck do you have, like, a big-ass fucking butterfly, like, scarred into your chest, you know? <laughs> he's just like, that was, like, hardcore when you're, you know, nine years old. You know, it's the Hungarian symbol of freedom and... Um, I was just like, all right. Um, so, but for him to say to me that he wasn't sorry about doing these things, you know, to say that he's like, I had to do these things and, and pursue the things that I wanted to do and felt I needed to do to, um, help me progress as a person and to do these things. He's just like, because if I wouldn't have gone to Iraq, if I wouldn't have, you know, joined, been in the military or become a pilot or done all these things, he's just like, then I probably would have been a really shitty dad. Like, I don't know how to be a dad or anything. He's just like, um, you know, my, my dad never put hands on my brother. Right? You know, him and my mom had it worked out where basically, you know, if we needed an ass whooping, she'd be the one to do it because she was there all the time. She could be there to basically, you know, uh write that in the relationship whereas my dad you know if he's only home sparingly you know and it's one of those like oh wait till your dad gets here things 
you know, and he's only home every couple months. It's just like he didn't want himself to become like this scary figure of like, oh, man, when he gets home, it's going to be all bad. You know, he like he wanted it to be good when he came home. And so um, so he, he never like was bad like that. You know, it was just like we were just fucking mean to each other. Like my family to this day, like we still communicate through insulting each other. Like we've we've got some pretty pretty thick skin to say the least, um, but like it it used to be a lot more like venomous and, um, yeah it just it, it it was a different experience in itself for him to say sorry but I'm not sorry about these things, um and and that he just he did what he needed to do because otherwise yeah he he would have been home and he would have probably been a mean parent he probably would have been you know you know, would have whooped our asses, like, and so that was, that was a big thing for me, and I have thought back to that conversation every single time, like, I've ever gone to rehab or, like, made these big decisions in my life, and I realize now, like, all the best decisions I've made, coming down here, getting, you know, these jobs for Eden and for Trula, and um, just, any time whenever I actually feel like content and happy with, with things I'm doing is when I truly just say, I don't give shit about anyone else's opinions. You know, I don't give shit about the money I make at a job. Like I'm doing these things because I, I want to do it for me and, and to be the best version of myself that I can be. The money will always follow, you know, if, if I'm happy doing the things that I'm doing. You know, some people can do that whole, like, regular 9 to 5 clock in, doing a job that they don't really care for, things like that. I can't. I get bored so easily. And, like, when I get bored, I freaking, you know, I do I do really dumb shit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, even being bored I do to the extreme. Like, someone pointed this out to me the other day because it's just, like, I, I never thought I was an intense person. Like, I always thought, like, oh, yeah, I'm just, like, trying to kick back and chill, right? Mm-hmm. It's like when you get kidnapped, like, twice in a year, you know, cause, and you feel like you're just trying to, like, kick back, chill, make a couple bucks or whatever, you know, it's like you should probably reevaluate some stuff. Like, you know, you shoot a flare gun in someone's car, you level a fucking hillside with, like, some C4 allegedly, you know? It's like, <laughs> uh, like... You know, you're not just, like, sitting back and chilling or things like that. Like, and um, so even when I'm bored, I, I somehow managed to, like, take that to the extreme. Like, and so I another common, like, one of those cliche things you'll hear in rehabs and stuff like that is, you know, if you put half the effort uh, into basically your recovery as you did into, like, chasing dope or whatever, it's like, then, you know, you'll go a long ways. And I feel like I'm barely putting any effort in sometimes. Like, and, and dude, shit is going really good for me now. Like, shit's going so good for me now, you know? And, and it's still, it feels surreal sometimes. <laughs> so uh, b- before we get into kind of what you're doing now and how you've changed your life around, um, what was that turning point for you to come back here and, get these jobs you know you mentioned you were, you found yourself in the back of a car what was that about um okay well uh, let's see um I'll, I'll guess i'll turn it back a little further to just like um shortly after the whole suboxone thing like i started doing meth like 
because, again, I felt like there wasn't enough hours in the day to do all these things I wanted to do. Like, and I had college finals coming up, and, like, this guy who I was selling Suboxone to, like, I knew he did meth, and he's all crying as he sells it to me. I'm just like, hey, man, I got finals coming up. I just need to, like, study, you know? I was like, I've never done it before, and he's just like, he's crying as he's selling me this freaking meth, and he's like, you know, promise me, you know, like, this is the only time you're going to buy it from me, and promise me you're not going to shoot it up. I was like, I promise. I literally, I go home, I Googled how to shoot meth. Uh. Like... <laughs> And, and I was off to the races, you know? And it was like, but I'd just do small amounts, this and that. And it's like, and that, like, that one freaking took me for a spiral and fast, you know? Like, I really liked the fact that all of a sudden, like, there was enough hours in the day because the day lasted for weeks, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I was... Uh, I was doing that for quite some time, and uh, I very quickly, you know, uh, my daughter, we had assigned guardianship to my mom and uh, my stepdad, um, and they shortly after found out that I was using, um, so I was in an apartment on my own, you know, my daughter wasn't ever exposed to, like, me shooting up and things like that, like, um, and so I, like... I very quickly, I lost everything. I had a freaking nice little BMW that I was living out of for a while. And you get a lot of funny looks when you tell people you're homeless and you're driving a BMW like 525i, you know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) a lot of people were like, what? (laughs) And, uh, you know, the car ended up being like in a high speed chase and all this other stuff and freaking, it was all fucked up. And uh, I basically had to sell it to like pay back. Like I was in arrears with child support and all this other shit, and um, had to sell that. Freaking, I barely made it through college. Um, I used my degree for like two or three months, and I was like, "Fuck this!" And uh, so I started just doing the street kid thing again, you know. And it's like uh, I was never really into like stealing people's shit or things like that. Like that's never been my jam. Like. If I was going to pay for my drugs, I was going to, like, earn my money to, like, pay for drugs, you know? And so, um, even if that was, like, hustling or things like that, but... So, I started, you know, uh, I I basically used the last bit of money I had to start, like, selling meth to basically just fund my meth habit and, you know, maybe pay enough people to kind of, like, let me start couch surfing. And, um, yeah, I uh, fast forward a little bit of time and... Um, yeah, I'm staying at this one guy's house one time. I've been kidnapped twice, okay? Um, and the first time I'm staying at this guy's house, and it was just some freaking tweaker shit that, like, uh, I fall asleep, I wake up, my backpack is open on my back, and, like, there's all these people standing around me, like, when I wake up, and, like, one of them's got my phone, one of them's got, like, a rifle freaking, like, right to my fucking head, and it was, like, an old-school, like, World War II, like, rifled, right? I was like, what the fuck, you know? Who holds, like, an M1 Grand, like, very much to your <laughs> fucking head, you know? It's, like, that's kind of terrifying, like, to think about. And it's, like, and they're just, like, oh, yeah, fucking, you know, you're coming out to the garage. I was, like, why? And they're, like, thinking all this shit, like, was going on on my phone. Like, I was doing all this, like, shady stuff or whatever, like, because with my IT degree, like, I fixed people's phones. Like, all of these people standing in this room had at least once 
brought me some phone that they stole from someone else and like wanted me to basically get into the phone, you know, because it'd be locked or whatever. So I'd get into these phones and I'd use my Google stuff when freaking logging into it. And so like all these accounts ended up like their information was like synced to my Google account or whatever, right? Because when going through it, I just hit okay, 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 okay. And I never like realized that when I was hitting all those okays, one of them was like, do you just want to merge the data, right? And it's like, so I have all these people's stuff. And this, so they like thought I was like, oh, stealing everybody's freaking account information or things like that or passwords. I was just like, I didn't even realize those were in there, dude. I was just like freaking trying to fix your stolen phones for you idiots, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and they're like trying to figure out what my master plan is, dude. So it's like, they freaking dragged me out to like this shed, dude. And they're just like beating the fuck out of me for like two hours. And it was like, and the, the one guy who like I thought was my friend whose house it was at, he's like, you know, trying to convince this one dude who, like, he and I had had uh, a couple of little run-ins before. He's trying to convince this dude who is probably the most mentally unstable of the bunch to take these garden shears and, like, cut off one of my fingers, right? Uh, he's just like, yeah, where I'm from, freaking, we cut fingers off these or whatever. And I was like, fuck you, dude. And it's like, and this dude who he puts the shears in his hands, like, one of the most unstable people I've ever met in my life, he goes... That's too fucking far. Like, I'm already on the ground, freaking, you know. One girl's already freaking, like, whatever, cut my face with a fucking knife, and freaking, uh, everyone's taking their turn just kicking me in the ribs, dude. Freaking, here on my fucking leg, like, you can see that scar, that whole thing right there, like, and up to there, they had this, like, elk femur, right? The knuckle of it, like, cut off, put on the end of, like, a stick, dude, and they fucking clubbed my shin in. Like, they broke my shin. They freaking stomped this foot until, like, two or three of the toes were broken, like, in the middle of the foot. You know what I mean? I've got a scar on my foot from that. And it's like, so I'm just sitting there, just taking all of this beating and everything. And when the dude freaking talked about cutting off my finger, I was just like, you know what? I'm done. I literally, I was just like, I just got myself up off the ground and I just looked at them all and I said, I'm done. And I just freaking limped right out of there. I just opened up the door. I just walked outside and I left. And they all just kind of looked at me and they're just like, what? <laughs> like nobody came after me because I think they were all just surprised that like, you know, I just, I just stood up and I was like, okay, I'm out. I'm, I'm over it. <laughs> like, and you think that one would have kept me sober? No. Like, uh, I had this girl who I fell so in love with because, you know, we had really great sex and we did a bunch of meth. Like, I proposed to her dumbass and, like, we would fight and then have this, like, just whatever, rough meth sex. um, Like, I just, I thought she was the best ever. It's like, I pissed her off one time and, like, she stabbed me with a dirty needle and I got, like, I have hep C now because of this, right? Like, again... Apparently, I, I take things a little to the extreme. Like, she's burned me with a blowtorch and stuff, and I still freaking, like, chase this girl, right? So, I've been tortured. I've been freaking, <laughs> you know, I chased this fucking stupid girl to the ends of the earth, whatever, and it's like, um, and then, probably about a year, yeah, about a year after that first time uh, with that whole torture situation, um, I, I, was, I was pretty done with getting high at this point like I mean I was still getting high like all the fucking time but it was like in my head I was just like I hate this you know what I mean like 
it, it was not really fun anymore. And, uh, and the side effects were showing and, and my daughter, you know, I, my, whenever my family would see me, they'd like tell me about her that like, she's going to therapy and just all these things, dude. And it just, it break my heart. And it was like, but at the same time when it's like, I would hear these things, like it makes you want to get better, but at the same time you feel so helpless and hopeless that the only thing you know to do to like not feel that hurt and stuff is to just like just keep getting high you know and it's just this vicious repeating cycle of like you're never solving the problem you're just freaking you know putting a pin in it until freaking you can't anymore right and so um so anyways i i start hatching up this freaking plan of like how am i going to basically like have my you know couple big freaking little last job kind of deals and you know cash out like I want to make enough money to like basically get out of this scene because I, I was so fucking over it and me and this one buddy of mine who uh, he actually was involved in that first torture thing he was the one who put the garden shears in other hands he and I somehow like had become like friends again <laughs> right like after this whole thing like it was it was one of those like really strange friendships like every day because like he was pretty much the only person like who would you know he felt bad about what he did so he like started letting me stay like in a shed behind his house like and like every day i'd look at him i'd be like jesse one day i hope you know i'm going to kill you you know what i mean like every day i tell him this and yet we were like friends like mm -hmm. and and we just laugh about it this and that and um anyways he he one day you know says like oh yeah uh I can get all this silver and we get all this silver right and like i'm talking 50 something dollars in face value just in 1964 silver quarters right freaking big bullion bar stuff like that take it in trade it in we get like you know a bit over three grand for all this silver and um i was like i know how to turn this money into more money <laughs> send me like with your half of the money and I'm going to like, I have this plan, you know, and I, I start, you know, uh, associating with, um, some bikers in one town, uh, and some other, uh, bikers in another town. And I'm just like, Hey man, basically like peanut butter, meat, jelly, like freaking, I want to set up this route. Like, and I just want to make all this money for you guys, like over the next month, basically. And I, then I want to like cash out. Right. And, like, it doesn't quite go that simple, right? And um, so one of the days, probably about a week into it, like, at first it was making money, and then a couple people in the town, like, because everyone always knew me. I was just, like, I was, I was broke, you know what I mean? Like, I was, like, the super broke freaking, like, tweaker. Like, I didn't have the house. I didn't have the family to go to. I didn't have somewhere I could just, like, flop all the time, you know? Like... I was that guy who was like, I was going up to these other people who did have houses or things like that. And I was just like, Hey man, freaking let me like chop all this firewood and just like, let me fucking eat a meal and, and crash on your couch. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even care about getting high. Just like give me somewhere where it's not freaking zero degrees outside. Um, and, and so it was like that, that was like my life. And, um, 
So when people start hearing all of a sudden, like, because they catch wind that, like, oh, yeah, Stefan's not, like, driving around in a car and, like, has all this money and is, like, you know, has all these drugs and da-da-da. So it's, like, really quickly, all of a sudden, it's, like, it stopped making money and it just kept, like, being this just even break, um, you know, because I, I learned really quick that, like, you never carry around more than you're willing to lose, right? And so it was, like, I kept basically breaking even and even actually uh, – got a little bit at a loss because all these people started robbing me and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, fuck it. I don't care. Whatever. Robberies happen. And it's like, but then one day, um, like the usual person who I had been picking up from, like wasn't available. And I've got this person from, you know, this motorcycle club who was just like, they're kind of like, well, they, they weren't part of the motorcycle club. They're almost like, a third party kind of guy who they're just like, Oh yeah, we're going to freaking have him go with and like, make sure everything goes smooth sailing. Cause like, this was basically the guy who was like, I was going to pretty much say like, Hey, this is how I do it. Like, and keep him around for like a week or so. And then, uh, hand it off to him so that like he saw what I was doing with like was legit. Right. And so, um, my, <laughs> it's like the first time I'm doing this with this guy, uh, following me and my usual person like isn't available. So like, instead of going all the way to Spokane, now it's like, I got to stay in Idaho, which it's less of a drive. Yeah. But, uh, it's whatever different price. And so I freaking, I hit up this guy who like, I, I thought was a good friend of mine. Like he had been, uh, he had helped me a lot, uh, at that time. And, um, yeah, I send him, I end up sending him with all the fucking money. And he was just like, yeah, I'll get back to you like an hour or two. Well, he just like ghosts on me for like 12 hours, right? No call, no text, nothing. I'm like freaking out. And like, I've got this dude who's like, you know, like representing these bikers, you know what I mean? Who's like, where the fuck is the money? Like, what's going on here? Like, this is set up, blah, blah, blah. And like, dude, I'm going to freaking get like hurt. You know what I mean? If I can't like come up with a good explanation here. And so it's like, he wants me to go around and start looking for him. And like, this is my friend. So it's like, I'm freaking, I'm worried about him. You know what I mean? I was like, that's not like him to just ghost like that. And so we start going around looking for him. I'm just like knocking on every freaking door like possible. Right. To be like, where the fuck is Ryan? Uh, yeah. He just like, he ends up messaging, and he's like, yo, I was, like, out in the woods freaking cutting down some wood, like, and, uh, you know, with the person who basically was going to get it for him. And so, um, yeah, he just had never checked in because he was just like, yeah, I was in the woods. I didn't have fucking service. Like, it is what it is. And But he found out, like, I'd showed up to, like, his girlfriend's house and all these other people's houses, right, like, with a stranger. And they're just like, what the fuck? And, um yeah, pretty much, uh, like, short of it is um, me and this guy, like, I had found another friend who, like, I knew that she usually knew where to find him, like, those two are close, right, and we're, like, driving around, freaking, uh, just looking for him for hours and hours, like, the sun's starting to come up, I'm freaking out, and I was just like, you know what, I'm gonna take a nap. Like, I need to take a nap. I haven't been asleep for, like, freaking two fucking weeks. You know what I mean? I was just like, I need to crash out for a little bit. And 
I I literally like I crawled into the trunk of this car, right? You know, because I was just like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna sleep in the trunk." <laughs> like y'all just driving around, fucking. I don't want to see the sunlight right now. I just want to nap. And like, I wake up, uh, like to like hearing us pull into a driveway, and like I can hear now. There's like more people in this car, right? And it's just like, and it doesn't sound like they're having very good conversation about me, right? And I hear them mentioning this dude who we were looking for. Like, it sounded to me like they knew where he was the whole damn time. You know what I mean? They were pretty much, like, waiting for this opportunity. Like, yeah, she was actually, like, more on his side than she was on my side. That's, like, that whole, again, moving around a lot and being that outsider. You know what I mean? Like, this is a town of 2,000 people. People have been there for generations. It's like if you are not from there, whether you're, in, you know, into drug scene or not, like, you will never have that, like, history and rapport with these people. You know what I mean? You can be someone's best friend out there. Like, if they're from there, they're still going to put someone else who is a local, like, over you. And so, like, yeah, this this girl was just, like, she pretty much led me along, waited till I was getting tired. And, yeah, she's just like, you know... Hop in this fucking trunk. I can take it down. I was like, all right, cool. And next thing you know, dude, this trunk is popping open. And I just freaking, uh, I just feel a boot just come down on my fucking side of my face. And, um, yeah, like, they basically, he popped open the trunk, and there's the dude I was looking for. And he just, like, hops up in there, and he just starts stomping my head freaking right out the bat. You know, what the fuck is wrong with you? Fucking come to my house. Fucking you scare my girlfriend like that. Scare all these fucking people. And, like, he puts on all these freaking skull rings and stuff like that. He kept, he'd close the trunk every once in a while, open it back up, and just start, boom, fucking, you see this ring? Fucking tell me you like this. You know, do you like this ring? And I was like, no, I don't. And he fucking, boom, fucking, he's like, I'm going to keep hitting you until, you know, until you tell me that you like every one of these rings. And, like... You know, there are all these, like, different skull, like, fucking Nazi rings, shit like that. And he's just like, bah, 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 bah. Again. Until I told him every one of his rings. Oh, I liked it. I was just like, dude, you're such a fucking piece of shit. Like, <laughs> once again, I was like, I was almost more just getting irritated, like, by this whole thing. Because I was like, would you just shut the fuck up and, like, listen? You know? But people don't want to listen. And so, <laughs> like, um... Yeah, he had, like, taken my freaking knife off of my side and all that. Like, they drive me up to, up by this creek, or creek and, uh, yeah, the, the door comes open, or the trunk comes open again. Like, I had once tried to kind of, like, pull it, because I was trying to think, like, where was I, right? Because there's, again, town of 2,000 people, you generally kind of know where you are. And I was just like, is this an area where there's, like, kind of a busy road or whatever? And... I was, I was going to just open that trunk, right? But it's like, I knew they had a gun. Like, he had already fucking put this, like, revolver, like, up in my face and shit. And I knew that another person in the car, like, had a gun, too. And, um, yeah, because he had managed to, like, sweet talk that freaking biker dude or whatever to basically, like, say I'm the bad guy, like, in this. And, like, so now they're both against me. <laughs> like, and it's just all bad. And, um, yeah, we get up the creek. Um... Yeah, I made a mistake. Like, as soon as I had started to pop that trunk thing, I just freaking pulled it back down because, like, I had my eye right there, and I saw there was no car behind us. Like, yeah, I, I would have been fucked, and I didn't want him to shoot through that trunk. I didn't want to try and jump out at, like, 40 miles an hour. And so I was like, 
so I just chilled back out. We get up to the middle of fucking nowhere, and uh, once again, just the beating continues. Boom, 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 boom. Freaking, uh, you know, people putting whatever knife in my face, just like, I should fucking gut you. Da, da, da. And I was like, what the hell did I really do wrong here? And, um, yeah, I, I remember this guy, he goes over to the creek, he gets some water, you know, and he freaking, like, starts spraying it on my head, you know, like, flicking it, like, and he does the little, like, makes a, like, cross with his wet fingers, like, on my forehead, right? He's just like, do you believe in God? And I said, no, I don't. You know what I mean? And uh, he's just like, put your hands in front of your face like you're praying. He, like, tapes my hands up, like, in a prayer way, you know? And then he's doing this whole baptism bullshit and, like, telling me, you know, uh, your daughter doesn't deserve you, you know, your family doesn't deserve you, fuck you, you know, like, uh, it's probably a good time to find God because, you know, uh, maybe he'll forgive you, you know, but you guys are going to get acquainted here, you know, pretty soon. And I was just like, dude, fuck off trying to, like, do some shit, like, think you're in a movie or something like that, you know what I mean? I was just like, stupid. And, um, yeah, so he does this whole thing, freaking hits me a couple more times. And it's like, and his dumbass, right, he just had, like, masking tape. <laughs> it's like, masking tape's not, like, super effective, right? And he, like, does his masking tape around my, like, feet and my hands. And it's like, yeah, he did it thick and stuff, but it's like, Dude, my hands were just, like, so bloody and sweaty. Like, he closed that trunk, right? And it was just, like, I just wait, and I wait, and, like, I'm I'm assuming, like, it's done now. You know, he says that, like, yeah, uh, I hear him basically leave, and he's telling these uh, people in the car, you know, he leaves a gun with them, and he's just, like, you know, go, just go handle this. You know what I mean? And, like, he's not going to be in the car associated with it. And so anyway, like, uh, he dips out and I hear these people in the car, like, uh, you know, they're going to go, whatever, shoot me on the side of the fucking road out in Montana. And like, that's, that's the brakes, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and so, uh, yeah, trunk door closes and, and I'm certain now that, you know, it's probably not going to open until like, it's going to be the last time that trunk opens, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, all this blood and sweat has, like, lubricated this tape, dude. And I just freaking, like, barely even twist my hand. You know, I'm free. <laughs> and so it's, like, but I'm, like, going in and out of consciousness now because, like, one, I'm tired as hell. I haven't freaking been high for hours and hours. Um, and and I've had my head thoroughly fucking flogged, you know. And um, I wake up, at, like, I come into consciousness at this one point. And I hear a drive-thru, right? Like, I hear these people, like, ordering. And I'm, like, trying to make sense of, like, am I dreaming? Is this real, right? There's only one drive-thru in, like, Kellogg, Idaho, or in the whole Silver Valley. Like, it's a McDonald's, and it's right across the street from the hospital. And so it's, like, all of a sudden I realize these people wanted to stop and get a bite to eat before they fucking took me out to kill me, you know what I mean? And it's just like, because I think they had been, like, saying something to me because, like, I had heard my name being said a few times. Like, so I think they thought that I was, like, passed out, you know, back there. Like, and so, um, yeah, they decided to, like, go hit this drive through And that's, like, the one area where I know is always, like, there's always traffic, right? It's fucking McDonald's, like... Those miners love their cheeseburgers, bro. <laughs> and so, like, 
I wait until I hear the lady say, you know, all right, pull up to the first window. Because then it's like, I know there's a car in front of me. There's a car behind me. There's a witness out the window. Are you really going to freaking, like, shoot someone broad fucking daylight like that, right? And it's like, I had all been prepared for, like, if they did try to chase me or something like that. I don't know how I thought, like, this was going to make sense. Like, um, all right, I guess I was waiting for, like, if the trunk had opened, like... I pulled off this, like, I had this big leather belt on, and I, like, wrapped it around my hands, right? You know, I was ready. Like, if someone opened that trunk, dude, I was just going to wrap it around, do some goddamn, like, you know, Bruce Lee shit and just, like, yeah, break their neck, you know? <laughs> I, was, I was ready for him, right? And, yeah, it's like, here's my pants just, like, coming down because it's just, like, I'm freaking, what, like, 120 pounds at this time. Like, and only pants I had were, like, some size 34 waist, like, that someone else had, like, loaned to me. And here I'm taking off the only thing holding those pants up, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just, like, I'm all bloody. I got this belt wrapped around my hands. I hear that lady, like, say, pull up to the window, dude. I just grab that little glowing handle, and I just step out of there. <laughs> and, dude, I just, like, I book it. Like, my pants are, like, falling down to, like, my ankles, dude. I'm, like, bleeding everywhere and shit like that. I was just like, fuck you, and fucking started running, right? <laughs> it's like, and nobody at this drive-thru, like, stopped or even looked, like, concerned. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cops didn't show up or anything, like, this is this is a town where it's like if you do something bad enough, like the cops are probably just as likely to throw you down a mine shaft as like any of the fucking tweaks are. You know what I mean? Like it's very much a like we handle our own business kind of town. You know, <laughs> like uh, and and it's kind of worrisome like how just nonchalant everyone was about this bloody you know pantless man like running across a parking lot at like noon <laughs> the whole thing sounds like a movie man yeah <laughs> it's and, and it's like and i run over to the hospital and, and mind you like i had just started like hearing about covid like shoshone county idaho was like one of the last counties like in the united states to be hit by covid and now they already have like 75 deaths in a town in 2000 like that's unheard of but anyway like so so this whole covid scare is like just starting to come to the silver valley you know it's cinco de mayo and like uh I run to this hospital, and there's this, like, little old lady, like, in a wheelchair or whatever. She's, like, hitting the button trying to get in the hospital, and I, I am, like, finding out that they don't just let people in the hospitals now. You know, you're supposed to apparently have this mask on or whatever. I was like, what the fuck is this? This is, like, the first time I'm hearing about this. And I'm just, like, I just tell this old lady, dude, I was just, like, fucking move. And I start slamming that button, dude. And it's, like, and the people in the hospital, it's, like, they can see you, right? You know? And they're, like, what's wrong? And I was, like, let me in. Let me in. You know what I mean? And they're just like, what's your problem? I was just like <laughs> pointing to myself because I was like, I don't know what to say. You know what I mean? I was just like, I, I need help, man. <laughs> like, I'm hurt. And like, they just send someone over, walk in super slow. They open the door for me. And they're kind of like looking me up and down like, you know, oh, yeah, what? Is this fucking like fake blood or something like that? You know what I mean? I don't know what the hell his thought process was, but he's just like, you know, almost, almost like one of those looks you'd imagine, like some bouncer, like is his name on the list kind of fucking looks. Just <laughs> like, you know, am I like the right freaking quality to be going into a goddamn hospital? You know what I mean? Like, and I'm just worried that like, because at the time I didn't realize that my, my daughter's mom, she, she didn't work at that hospital anymore. But it's like she had used to work like in that hospital. So I'm like freaking out. She's going to see me all tweaked out, beat the fuck up. And it's like, go in there. And they're like, what's your name? And I was just like. 
that's none of your business. You know what I mean? They're just like, we can't treat you if you don't tell us your name, you know? And I was just like, that's a lie. Freaking verbal consent is still consent. I was just like, you just need to know my name so you can bill me. You know what I mean? I was just like, y'all don't need to know my name. And they're just like, what happened to you? And I was like, I fell. You know, I just keep telling them it was like, I fell. And I was like, a couple of fish-shaped rocks hit me here, here, and here. You know, a couple of boot-shaped rocks freaking hit my head here and fucking my ribs over here a few times. And then a pistol-whip-shaped rock got me like right here. You know what I mean? And they're just like... Wow, that's a hell of a fall, you know what I mean? And they're still just, like, pressing on this whole, like, what's your name thing, you know? Like, they're not going to take me back to, like, get a CT scan or anything until I tell them my fucking name. And I was just like, no, 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 no. And it's like, finally, um, like, I, I think one of them recognized me or whatever, and they, like, asked me if that was my name, and I just kind of, like, shook my head. And they bring me back, go get the CT scan, and the doctor just tells me, he's like, well, you're definitely fucked up in the head, but freaking, like, your CT scan's, like, all right, you know what I mean? It doesn't look like you have freaking brain damage. You're just probably a fucking idiot, you know what I mean? I was just like, oh, thanks, doc, you know? And then they're just like, here's your clothes. Fucking get the fuck out. <laughs> like, you know, if you don't want to file a police report or anything like that. And it's just like, there's nothing to file a police report about, you know? It's like, because um, I just, I felt that that would only, like, make things a lot worse, you know what I mean? Like, I'm still very much just... That, that That's a mentality that freaking, uh, you know, has stuck with me for a long time. It's just like, dude, if, if you're in your own fucking mess, it's like you own it, you know what I mean? And uh, I'm, I'm not going to freaking just narc someone out over, <laughs> over damn near ending my life, but you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, that, that's my own cross to carry, I suppose. Like, I put myself in that situation. And so, like, I yeah, I get out of the hospital, dude. I'm like... And it's freaking me out. Like, I I mean, everywhere. I'm just like, uh, I'm pretty well sobered up at this point. And I'm just like, I can't stop looking over my shoulder and stuff like that. Like, I'm I'm freaking out. I'm super fucking on edge. Um, I walked onto the street to my buddy Carl's house. Um, and him and his wife, they just like, they let me, I, I show up, like, I had just seen him for the first time in, like, over a year, like, two days before this happened, right? So, like, we had just been like, oh, yeah, so good to see you. And then, like, two days later, boom, I'm showing up all bloody and shit like that. Like, oh, fucking, you know, your cousin's one of the people who, like, did this to me. And, like, uh, yeah, they just, like, let me crash on their couch, dude. And I was out for, like, almost a solid, like, two days in a row or so. You know, I just, like, wake up, freaking piss, freaking shower. And then, like, sob a little bit, but it's, like, but I couldn't cry. Like, ever since that first kidnapping thing, like, I have not been able to, like, cry at all, like, since then. Like, and it's, like, I'll, I'll get sad or upset about things, but, dude, I just, I, I cannot get, like, tears to come out sometimes. And, and like, it's, it's not something that's, like, cool or tough or anything like that, you know what I mean? Again, ladies love a sensitive man, you know what I mean? Like, but I, I, I just, I don't know why, I just, like, can't anymore. And, like, um, when I came to, it was just, like, everything just, like, all of a sudden was, like, really clear to me. I was just, like, I, I don't want to get high anymore. Like, um, that girl, the one who, like, stabbed me with hep C and all that, right? I was, like, still friends with her parents, and so, like, I walk over to her parents' house a couple blocks away, and I was just like, hey, I need to use the phone, like, call my mom, like, and I never talk to my mom, and it's like, I call my mom, and I was just like, mom, I'm ready to go to rehab, and she's like, what? 
I was like, yeah, I'm ready to go to rehab. Like, I had tried to go up to my daughter's house to, like, say bye to her. I'd knock on the door, and it's like, nobody answers the door. Cops show up, you know what I mean? Like, someone in the house, like, called the cops on me and shit. Because, like, I was still wearing these, like, bloody clothes and stuff. Like, and apparently they had put, like, a, um, not a restraining order, but just a uh, trespass order on me for their property. Like, and I didn't even know that, right? I didn't know that things had, like, got that bad with her. And, like, um, yeah, so the cops show up, tell me that I need to leave. And that, like, just solidified this whole, like, dude, yeah, I got to get out of here. Like, if I can't even just, like, show up and, like, see my daughter, you know. And so um, I, I go out to Montana for, like, two weeks to, like, just kind of dry out, you know, and uh, discuss my options. And um, I, like... I talked to her, and, again, my whole family, they they didn't want me coming back to St. George because, like, they all just remembered, like, when I was an opiate addict and stuff like that out here, you know what I mean? Like, they didn't remember the whole, like, yeah, but this is also where I, like, first experienced recovery. And, again, I had this whole, like, beautiful support network out here, you know? Like, I, I used to go to meetings, like, freaking five to seven days a week. Like, I had a sponsor, a sponsee, freaking, like, all this good shit, right? And it's, like... Um, so I tell him like, Hey, I want to go to this, uh, Salvation Army again out in Vegas. Like I'm, I'm really ready to commit to rehab. And I take a 43 hour fucking bus ride from Butte, Montana down here. Like, because at that time they didn't just like have a route where it would just like go straight down, hit Salt Lake and then come down. No, I went all the way through Idaho, through Spokane, freaking like out to the freaking coast, came down the California coast. There was only four 15 minute layovers. Like, out of 43 hours, dude, <laughs> like, it was a nightmare, and it's like, I get out to Vegas, and, uh, yeah, because this whole COVID thing or whatever, like, I'm having a hell of a time getting into the rehab, and it's just like, and I'm just realizing, like, Vegas doesn't seem like a good place for me to get clean, you know what I mean? Like, at this time, don't, don't get me wrong, like, probably would have been the ideal time to be getting clean in Vegas, because nobody was around, like... I got off the, like, the Greyhound station in Vegas is, like, right there by Fremont. Like, it's literally right off of Fremont. And I get there, it's, like, midnight, right? And it's black. There's not a soul. Like, I walked freaking, like, the Vegas Strip, like, with all the lights pretty much, like, off for the most part. There's not a homeless person in sight. There's nothing. Like, it was some 28 days later shit, you know? I felt like I had walked into the apocalypse, I was just like, dude, this COVID stuff is, like, real. This was, like, the first time I, like, again, I was really experiencing, like, seeing what the rest of the craze was about, you know. In the, Va- in the Silver Valley, it still wasn't, like, nobody believed it was a real thing yet, you know. And so uh, it, it was fucking wild. And I just, I just realized, that, fuck, dude, I hate Vegas. I hate big cities. And I had been in a town of 2,000 people for seven years. So it's like even the little bit of traffic that was there was like giving me anxiety. Just like the tall buildings were freaking me out. Like, and I got stuck in Vegas for like four days because, again, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a way to get a hold of anybody. Like, um, I'm like hanging out by this freaking truck stop uh, off the Cheyenne Parkway exit. And like, uh, you know, I'm just bumming it with some some homeless people and shit like that because I just, I know how to get by. And it's like, I'm getting hungry, dude. Freaking, I'm talking to these guys. Hey, you know, how do I basically, you know, get people to, like, give me money, give me food, things like that, you know what I mean? And it's like, and that was the last time I got high with was, was with those people. And um, 
and I just realized how fucking miserable I was again. You know, it, it was the absolute fucking worst high. And, um, yeah, I started just freaking out. And I just walked into some hotel, and they were all, like, telling me to get out because I was just, like, dirty, everything. You know, I hadn't showered for, like, four days. And I was just like, dude, I just need to use your phone. Like, please, God, let me just use your fucking phone. And so he was like, I don't know. I was like, please. <laughs> I've got, like, $5. Please just let me use your phone. She's like, fine. Let's me use this phone. And, like, she ended up, like, she overheard the phone call, and she started, like, letting me use the phone for, like, the next two days, like, uh, me trying to basically figure out, like, a way to get from Cheyenne Parkway, like, to the airport to get on the St. George shuttle to get out here. And, like, um, she had arranged for someone to come pick me up, right? And I didn't know who it was going to be, like, that was going to pick me up when I got off the shuttle out here. And it's my friend Lacey and, like, um... Uh, when when I first got out of the Salvation Army and I came back here, that's the friend who, like, I was going to buy the house that she was living in, right? I was there for, like, through her first marriage and things like that. Like, um, you know, her and her first husband, they were both great friends of mine. Um, and when I got out of rehab, I moved in with them because they had both, like, been recently sober, but they both then relapsed. Uh, they divorced. Um, I stayed in the guest room. You know, Lacey and I, it's never been, like, a romantic relationship or anything like that. And it's, like... Um. yeah, they, they relapsed, and it's just like, uh, after he was gone, I just kept trying to, like, I kept just dragging her to meetings, dragging her to meetings, you know, I'd come home, she'd be freaking passed out on the couch, needle in her arm, and it's just like, and, and I'd just be like, all right, fucking, you know, I'd clean all her stuff up, make sure she's all right, she'd wake up, I'd like, let's go to fucking hit NA meeting, you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, I, uh, I come home one day and she's like not there every Friday like we would do these movie nights and stuff like that like I wouldn't be inviting girls over she wouldn't be hanging out with any guy friends like it would just be me and her and we'd fucking watch movies get pizza and just like chill right and uh I come home and she's not there and I'm like freaking out because something just felt wrong and so I call her parents I'm like hey have you seen Lacey and they're like um we're at the hospital you might like want to get over here and like say bye you know what I mean and, like, I go over there. They'd already brought her back once. And, like, right as I'm getting there, they're, like, she's crashing. And freaking, they got to hit her with another shot of Narcan. Like, she OD'd so bad that, like, she died twice that night. And, like, um, and and I stayed in the hospital for, like, 36 straight hours just holding her hand, you know, sitting at her bedside. Um, and And she has been clean ever since then. You know, like when she came to, I started taking her to meetings. I started getting her all into this recovery thing. Um, you know, she and I, like even when I moved up to Idaho with my daughter's mom, um, we we stayed in contact for like the first year and a half or so. And then, was, you know, life got in the way as it does. And um, uh, yeah, I kind of just not talked to her for the, you know, five years or so after that. And that was who my mom got me to, like, pick me up from the St. George shuttle, right? And I see Lacey. I'm like, holy fuck, dude. And she's like, yeah, fucking good job ever picking up your phone, asshole, you know, seven years later. <laughs> and uh, we just get to talking. I was like, so what are you doing now? She's just like, oh, yeah, I'm divorcing my second husband. Like, I've got, you know, these two kids. I knew about her one kid, but I forgot she had had a second kid. And, like, she's got these two, like, beautiful, smart children. She's, you know going through a, a nasty divorce of her own. But you know what? 
she's still clean like ever since then and this was that first moment again to go all the way back to the beginning of this where it's like i realized that the things i said and did like all those years ago had an effect on this person's life she's been clean ever since then she's a probation officer now she works at like a you know troubled youth facility and stuff like that it's the coolest thing ever you know what i mean and uh yeah she's just like you know she's like i i owe a lot of that to to you and you being there and things like that and so she's like least i could do is so i can come pick your ass up from the bus you know, I was like, what? <laughs> like, I didn't realize I mattered to people like that. You know what I mean? And and it was just this whole, uh, I don't know, it, it's just been so beautiful ever since then. Like, in a lot of ways, it's like, yeah, I've, I've had to talk to some people who they're just like, yeah, you said and did some fucked up shit, like, way back when. And, you know, here I am trying to do the immense thing again. Like, um, and, and, uh, yeah, it's it's a whole different ball game this time around um, because not only do I just, like, I know where I want to be and I know, like, these things that I want to come from my, uh, from my sobriety now, but I'm making the choices all for myself, like, regardless of what anyone else thinks. And, and for the first time, I'm thinking, like, how will the choices and things I say and do, like affect someone five years from now you know what i mean like and that's that's brand new to me and um so yeah it's, it's one of those just i take it one day at a time dude there's plenty of times where it's like yeah i'm like talking to the navajo nation and you know uh all these other people uh about like getting clean water and things like that these like huge freaking potential contracts and like feel like i'm saving the world and i'm like helping establish this mental health and wellness line you know for trula and like i'm doing these awesome things and there's so many times though it's like i'll be sitting there at the end of the day and i'm just like like some part of me is just like you know what sounds equally as good as like success and doing all these great things it's like just saying fuck it <laughs> and like you know i could probably just do one shot of math like kind of thing and just like throw it all away you know like it's amazing you can fit a house a car your friends and everything uh, like in the world into a freaking uh one cubic centimeter fucking syringe you know what i mean like yeah i mean often at times it's easier to take that road you know yeah like you mentioned multiple times but i love that last point that you made because yeah i know I, I like just just hearing you your story what i what i keep hearing is this existential like persona that you got going on that you you have I, I feel like you have this deeper meaning to life and and it's crazy to me when when you kind of go away from that you you sort of lose that whole you know and and with with addiction in general it's funny because there's like this hierarchy of needs you know maslow's hierarchy of needs and mm. one by one those needs just start slipping and and you just want to get your next fix you know and i i think that's something that people who haven't been in addiction don't really understand right and that's that's one reason why i wanted to point that out and to go back to that existentialism you know like you find meanings in these things you mentioned you took care of your daughter for two years you know you you found deep meaning in your treatment you know at, at the salvation army um then with your friend here um you know that that was you you know i i can i can feel that when you say that and and it's so cool that you found your passion and I can see where you're at now and what you're doing with Eden and 
Trula, uh, right? I said that mm, correctly. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, Brandon can speak to that more, but it, it, it's it's fascinating to see that because you just vividly explained like some of the craziest rock bottom things. Like you know, you you'd mentioned like being in the trunk of a car. That that literally is like a movie script and that was that was your life you know and and you even said some things like oh i didn't really think it was a bad a big deal but but you did and but you were able to you know climb out of that and find that meeting and i i highly respect you for that and that's so admirable yeah I, I mean i i haven't known you very long but i remember the first time i saw you you just you're walking in thinking a tank top walking, <laughs> around the, walking around the building here and i was like man who is this like what's he doing here? And then at day after day, I see you. I'm like, man, is he working here? I was like so confused who you were. But then like, <laughs> In my cowboy yeah, boots, yeah. all sunburnt to shit, still landscaping. Yeah. <laughs> day after day, like all of a sudden you come into the haircut, all of a sudden you're like really cleaned up, dressing really nice. You, you got yourself a car. I'm like, man, like he's really turned himself around. He's doing really well. You're so happy. I mean, you're just talking to everybody around here, brightening other people's days. It's incredible. <laughs> oh, shucks. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, I'm usually just making in, inappropriate comments and drawing funny shit like uh, half man, half horse on a unicycle with a duck hand on Ryan's <laughs> desk. Well, but, that's personality, <laughs> and that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't know. Like, And it's, it's one of those things, you know? It's like um, it gave me a lot of that perspective, that whole, like, life is short, you know what I mean? Like, and there's there's the worst thing really that can happen to me now it's like I, I feel like you know when when I was out there like getting high and everything like the stakes were high you know what I mean I had nothing else to lose but like everything to gain you know in those situations like it was true survival tactics I'll tell you nothing makes you appreciate freaking 120 balls fucking hot you know uh, weather in St. George Utah like sleeping under a stairwell for three days and almost having, you know, almost losing your pinky toes because of frostbite and shit like that. You know what I mean? Like I just started to grow the nails like on my uh, two smallest toes on either foot, like back like three months ago, right? And uh, it's it, it, it's wild. And now it's like I'm sober and it's like sometimes I, I struggle to like find excitement in things, you know, because it's like nothing's like that intense. But I'll tell you, it, it makes me, I, I appreciate like all these things that I have, you know, I'll be doing my laundry and I'll look over at Ryan and I'm just like, Ryan, this is probably going to sound weird, like, <laughs> but you don't know how much I, I appreciate even the fact that I can do my laundry and I have the same number of socks coming out as I did when I went in. Like, weirdest thing about when you're doing meth is like, people on meth, they all steal your socks and boxers. Like, dude, uh, like, no joke. Like, <laughs> I've gone commando for, like, three years because I just gave up on trying to, like, buy new boxers. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I haven't had, like, matching socks in forever. And it's like now I can, like, I go out and buy socks and boxers, and I'm, like, comfortable. <laughs> like, just, just to be able to have, like, clean laundry whenever I want. Like, I can wake up every morning. I can shower when I want. I will owe somebody for that shower. You know what I mean? Like... I, I don't have to freaking chop wood to freaking, you know, sleep on someone's couch or to, you know, chop, you know, a cord of wood, which is a lot of fucking wood, you know, to for them to, like, give me a sandwich that probably replaces, you know, a quarter of the energy I just spent, you know what I mean? Like, because I was just hungry. Like, I appreciate 
so much. And now, yeah, the worst thing that can happen to me is like basically someone tells me no or like I fall on my face a little bit. But it's like, man, I've I've survived at this point. You know what I mean? Like there's there's pretty much nothing really like that bad that can like happen to me of course you know the the things that would really affect me is anything ever you know happen to my daughter you know god forbid but um it's like really there's i i feel almost unstoppable and and a lot of it is the fact that i don't want really anything anymore besides just my basic needs met you know what i mean right yeah yeah and and when all i want is like the bare minimum like my expectations are incredibly low for everything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it may sound like this, whatever negative view, but it's just like, really, it's not. When when you have nothing to lose and everything to gain and freaking you expect things like you've just been used to this whole shit way. It's like, only thing people in uh, events can do is like, impress me at this point. Like if if things fuck up and it's not what I was hoping for, you know what I mean? That's okay. I was expecting shit quality anyways, you know? Like, right. yeah, I can't be disappointed. I can only ever be impressed. <laughs> like, well, and you mentioned coping skills earlier, you know, and like the lack of that. And and I think that that all comes with experience, you know? Uh, Matthew McConaughey said that sometimes it's, it's he's, he's awesome. Yeah. But he, he said in his book, you know, sometimes before you figure out who you are, you got to figure out who you're not. And I think that that's so, like... I take that so personally because, you know, we got to learn from experience and whether that's from ourselves, like some of the things you've been saying today or history or whatever it is, we take that and we learn. Um, and I think that's, I think that's kind of a great place to stop here. Um, you know, we, we really appreciate you coming in today and, and doing this. Um, but I want to, I want to kind of leave with one thought that I know I've talked to other people about, and one question that I've always had is what, how can, how can the family or that support group help in these situations better? How can they kind of step up and support and bring that meaning? Um, okay. So, so again, the only thing I I can speak to is, is what has again worked for me, my family and things like that. And, and hope that it gives someone that perspective. And, And this is how I handle these things. Um, you know, for my friends who are struggling and stuff like that, is that it's like, uh, one of the hardest things for me to accept was when I started getting bad, my dad, who, again, I've always, you know, like worshiped the ground he stood on. And and he told me, he's just like that he, he can't answer my calls or anything like that anymore. He's not going to, you know, send me money. He's not going to help me. He's not going to freaking do any of these things until like I'm really ready to change like but he always left that door open you know same with my mom it's like it was the fact that the people I loved and cared about you know cared enough to not let themselves basically get ruined with this shit you know what I mean it's like you cannot put your life on hold for the the misery of your friends because if you do when they are ready to change and and to do these things you're no longer in a place to to be of service to them. You know what I mean? It's like if you put your whole life on hold for that person, you're just enabling that habit. You know what I mean? And and it's one of those things. It's like just just always 
leave the door open, you know, for these people. Be there to support them and, and just say, you know, I, I, I love you enough that I, I can't, I, I don't want my, my image of you or my thought of you to ever be, you know, basically perverted by, you know, these, these things that are happening to you. Um, so, so I got to love you from a distance for a while, you know, but, but when you're ready to come back or things like that, like, you know, I'm here for you. Um, and that doesn't mean you're there to financially support them. That doesn't mean you're going to freaking open up your doors and let them sleep in your house or things like that. Like you gotta, uh, expect people to actually show that commitment. You know what I mean? Like this recent rehab I went to when I came down here, that's my fifth one. You know what I mean? I've been through them all. I've done every assignment that these rehabs can give. I can freaking tell you every person in every group, like their personality type and things like that. And I'm terrible at reading people. Like, but when it comes to rehabs, it's like I'm in my element there. I've done it so many goddamn times. Like, um, but I did it because I, I knew that everyone wanted to see me do the work. You know what I mean? And show that commitment. It's like, so if, if you want to change, um, be open and willing to go to any lengths to, to you know, get it, you know. Like, for real, you have to be willing to do the shit you don't want to do sometimes for a while. Like, to to really start to, you know, get that life that you want and, and to get those results. And if it's if it's someone you love, you know, just be encouraging and be supporting. Don't, don't ever tell someone what they have to do or things like that. You know, just tell them, like, hey, you don't have to do this, but, you know, my expectation of you is this and you know this is you know be very frank that you know you're not going to have my trust or my my respect or these things back until you meet these criteria and it's like if you don't want to do it then that's that's fucking fine that's your choice you know like we were uh i'm again i'm not a religious person but if if you believe in you know agency and all that and that we were given agency man you can't sit there and control someone else you know what i mean Freaking, if if your God or whatever didn't want you to basically be controlled by him and to give you that free will, why the fuck do you think that you have the right to tell someone what to do? You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Just Just love and support people and, and be there. And, and when someone wants to change, encourage that change in others. And the best way you can inspire that change in others is to be freaking pursuing being the best version of yourself that you can be. You know what I mean? Be Be inspiring. <laughs> you know I guess that's all I gotta say <laughs> yeah no I like that you know the best way you can help somebody else is by being in an example showing them what they can do what they can have in their lives so I think everything you've shared with us today is incredible it's inspired me and I think it will inspire our listeners so thank you for that and thank you to our listeners for tuning into another episode of the inside scoop on mental health Hey, thank you guys. Freaking thanks for letting me ramble. <laughs> yeah, no problem.